The Wiggly Podcast, bringing your garden to life. Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. We're in the Wiggly Kitchen and I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Farmer Phil from the farm. <laughs> You've got a farm piece coming up on this week's show. Yeah, we had a, had a mixed day the other day with the cattle. So there's a little bit I recorded on my thoughts on it, good and bad. So we can look forward to that. And, and there is good bits at the end. Right, there's normally death and destruction actually, but there we are. Um, we've got lots coming up in this week's show. It's a shorter format of show, which will be with you in the coming weeks. We've got some interviews with proper interesting people. But first of all, thanks for your feedback on the Space Guard show. If you didn't listen to it, it turns out Herefordshire Knighton's Paris equivalent of NASA is... Um, Knighton and we had the best ever title for the show which was the end is Knighton <laughs> quite relevant though if you do happen to collect one of those giant snowballs right on the beak I reckon that it's probably quite important what they're up to and it was fascinating wasn't it it was I was lucky enough to go to the Garden Organic Sustainability for Garden Centres conference where we looked at all sorts of issues that um well, I often accuse the conventional garden centre of encouraging. Into the dragon's lair, was it? <laughs> it was a little bit. There was Gardening Witch magazine, who have got a real bee in their bonnet, get it? <laughs> About bug boxes and hoggies homes. They think they don't work. And I was able to point out to them that you know, if you build a Barrett home and you don't have a family living in it within the first eight months, that does not mean it is not a house that will be a home. Also, probably more importantly, the attitude of the gardener who buys a bug box or a hoggy's home or whatever will change towards the idea of how they run their garden. Whether or not the hedgehog actually occupies the hoggy's home within a week is not entirely relevant. For those of you who haven't heard this argument, according to Gardening Witch and others, a hedgehog house or a bug box does not work if it doesn't get immediately inhabited by hedgehogs or by bugs. And I can happily tell you that without wishing to wind anyone up, that I'm not a great fan of bumblebee houses. I'm not sure that they work. We may be interrupted now by the milk coming in, so uh, watch out for that, dear listener. Here we are, here's the milk coming in. Yes, for those of you not sure, eight months is apparently about what you, what's needed to inhabit a hedgehog house or a bug box. If it's not inhabited then, then some people, including gardening, which think they're a waste of time. Um, I can say that from our point of view, bumblebee boxes are not good. We stopped selling those many years ago, and I'm not a great fan of frog houses, but... Hoggy's homes are brilliant and in our garden, even though we recommend you leave a little bit untidy, that you make sure that you have stacks of logs, they still prefer to use the tubes, especially mason bees, than they do to anything else. And of course, they're a great way of looking and viewing what's going on. Absolutely right. And also, if you get the right plants to sustain the wildlife and then give them the choice of where they can live, if you like, or in the case of a mason bee breed, 
you know, what can be wrong with that? Anyway, I'm sure this argument will rage. The point was, it was a fantastic conference about looking at how garden centres can be more sustainable themselves, encourage greener gardening and listen to their customers and, uh, with what they want. And the best speaker I felt was a chap called Alan Knight. And if you want to find out more about Alan, go to www.singleplanetliving.com. Uh, the concept is, if the planet were a business and the citizens of its world were its customers, the executive board should be anxious. At face value, the business is enjoying huge demand and growth, but behind the scenes, the supply chains are being overworked. It's using up resources at an unprecedented rate and causing material damage to its support systems. Business, as usual, looks unsustainable. What I liked about Alan was that his point was not to minimise the negative impacts that we are all having. So not become obsessed with our carbon footprints and decrease in waste output, but actually to look at the positive things that we can do to make change. So here we are. First up on the weekly podcast, my interview with Alan Knight from Single Planet Living. Well, here we are. We're at Garden Organic, and I'm very pleased to have just caught up with Alan Knight. Alan, I, I know you work for Virgin, but I didn't really understand what exactly you do. Can you just give me a little bit of background on you? I advise businesses on sustainable development. I have done for 20 years. I only work part-time with Virgin. I'm their independent advisor. So my role is to help the company in Richard Branson get their head around all the different issues you could imagine they're facing. But I do do work for other companies and, and I teach at Cambridge and Exeter as well. And you were sort of at the beginning of FSC with B&Q, I think? Yeah, I joined B&Q to help them sort out the problems they knew they had with where their tropical timber products like garden benches was coming from. And so I was one of about 15, 20 people who thought of and invented and made FSC happen from just an idea, a crazy idea in a meeting room to what we know today. Now, what I was interested in your talk was something that I've been thinking about for some time, which is the practical ways of changing the world that we live in without being too preachy, boring, and actually shutting down our whole place so that we're little greenies living in huts and never doing anything. And what I found interesting was that you were willing to stop blaming the consumer all the time and pass the responsibility on to the people that are actually retailing and producing the goods. So you were talking about limiting choice. Mm. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, the concept is called choice editing. And in a way, all businesses, but particularly retailers, you know, when you think about how we operate, we decide what we're going to, what choices we're going to offer our customers. And all I'm really saying is that we should do that for environmental and social issues. So instead of saying here is an FSC timber garden bench and it's an alternative to our conventional garden bench, I'm just saying you should only offer the FSC garden bench. And the research I've been involved in shows that actually customers expect that as well. And Firstly, when you talk about that, people go, that's crazy, you can't restrict customer choice. We're retailers, it's all about customer choice. But it's not really, is it? You know, good retailing is choice editing. You know, and an example I use, if Tesco sold every apple, which you could possibly grow in the world, they would have to offer 1,500 apples, but no, they offer seven or eight. So all I'm saying is in choosing your choice of apples from 1,500 to seven or eight, 
include in those decision-making criteria environmental and social issues and stop confusing the customer with so much information to sell them what's right. And don't you think that everyone knows this anyway? Because in my heart of hearts, I know that the customer doesn't want something that's harming the rainforest. In your heart of heart, you know that too. Mm. Consumers haven't necessarily got time to research every single thing. So it has to be about trust. And that trust must be there from the retailer, surely. Yeah, and I think that trust needs to be one. If you go into a, a tool shop and you buy a power tool like a drill or a lawnmower, customers don't say, before I buy this, can you reassure me that it's safe? They don't even look for the label <laughs> yeah. because they know that the brand, public policy and the retailers do the due diligence for them. If you then went home and you turned on that electric lawnmower and it gave you an electric shock, the brand and the retailer would be devastated and destroyed. Yeah. All I'm saying is don't underestimate how quickly we're getting there on environmental and social issues. And now the thing I loved was the happiness idea. Mm. Can you explain why people are happier, you know, how you're affecting happiness with environmental and social elements? Well, I think where the environmental and social debate's going, 20 years ago it was about bottle recycling, it was about saving rainforests and saving wells. The last 20 years have seen that debate immerse in something far more sophisticated, but also obvious, really, which is our lifestyles is about us having a good quality of life, which includes happiness. It's a glib word, but it's a nice word, and it's what we deep down mean. You know, we shop because we think it keeps us alive and it makes us happy. People are now beginning to reconnect with that side of, of ourselves and actually thinking happiness is something we have to work at. Happiness actually matters as much as GDP. You know, I think it's a hugely politically significant decision for Cameron to start measuring the happiness of British citizens. And he, he got it dead right. What's the point of having successful GDP? What's the point of good public policy if my citizens aren't actually fundamentally happy with their life? So we should measure that like we measure GDP. And I think once we understand happiness and we can measure it, and we know that that's what really matters. The sustainability debate becomes a lot more interesting um, because until now it's been about sacrifice. You can't do that because it's bad for the planet. You can't do that because it's bad for wildlife. What we're now saying is, no, these two things come together. No wildlife in a dirty environment makes you unhappy. And if you're unhappy, you, don't, you care less about the environment and therefore it becomes dirty and polluted. So the two need to work together and climb upwards. And so a language I use quite a lot, we talk about detox detoxing our bodies I think we need to detox sustainability and make it a positive can-do thing and not a blame argument which is where it's still at at the moment with a lot of people and your quote uh, we can't be unsustainable because that would be sustainable yeah I like that well, what I was really <laughs> saying is is one thing we forget about sustainability and we often go to conferences about you know is sustainability good for business if we agree that the current way we live our lives is unsustainable, especially with China and India emerging out of poverty, thank goodness. So if we agree life is currently unsustainable, we agree that it's going to change. Because you can't be unsustainable forever, because if you're unsustainable forever, you would be sustainable. Yeah. Uh, and therefore we're agreeing that sooner or later something's going to change from unsustainability to sustainability. So the only narrow choice we have as citizens is what do we want that sustainable outcome to look like? Do we want death and destruction and plague and wars to, to kill off populations, to get us down to, I'd say, a billion people who can then rebuild themselves? Commercially and politically, that's a really stupid sustainable outcome. 
And so what I'm saying is we, all we can choose is what sustainable outcome we want. And what I'm saying is the lifestyles we currently lead is what most people sort of want. So we've got to re-engineer the way we provide those lifestyles to make it possible to give that lifestyle to more people forever. And what's the main action that we should take? To, what, what do we need to do to fit in with your ideas? I think what you need to do is rather than focusing as a company or as an individual on how am I less bad, you know, how do I reduce my carbon footprint, how do I reduce my wastage, you've got to do that, but change the context from how am I less bad to how am I making it easier with my products for the world to achieve 9 billion quality lives by 2050, you know, where do I really make that happen? And actually, let, now let's be honest, let's look in the mirror, where do my products sort of hold that one back a bit? You know, where, what, what do I really need to sort of eliminate? And I sort of just call it, what's your product story? Who are your villains? And what are you going to do? Like all good stories, to kill the villain at the end. And what are you going to do to make the heroes in your product story win? It's that simple, but the question matters. Not how am I less bad, it's what contribution do I make towards good? What about gardeners? Because... There are a lot of people who've got gardens that certainly wouldn't call themselves gardeners and there are a lot of yeah. gardeners who are probably greener than a lot of other people. They're always looking ahead, certainly, to the future. How, how do gardens fit in with this plan? Presumably, they're utterly crucial, but I'm not sure Cuba actually worked out that well in the end, did it? Well, well you could... I think Cuba's so left field, but I know what you mean about Cuba. Cuba actually does do a lot of sustainability through the way he uses gardens. It's the politics of Cuba which sort of makes us sort of double take and go, we're not quite sure yet. The way I describe gardening and sustainability is that if gardens had never been invented and they just didn't exist at all, but a group of us were gathered under the direction of President Obama and the other world leaders to make sustainability happen. We probably would sooner or later invent giving everybody a little bit of land to put behind their houses where they reconnect with nature, grow a bit of their own food, do passive exercise and have the satisfaction of seeing things grow and having the satisfaction of having an outdoor space to relax. And just that very story, gardening is fundamentally good. You know, it is about passive exercise, it is about happiness, it is about connection with nature, it is about growing your own food. And so my frustration with the sector is is they spoil that story because they're getting overly defensive on the peat issue, the patio heater issue, questioning is FSE a good idea, and actually say, look, just do that, because that's contaminating a far bigger story, which will never ever get the airing it deserves, whilst we have this slightly defensive reaction to one or two of the villains in what is a good product story. And when, lastly, and when you go to these huge companies, the B&Qs and the virgins of this mm. world, are you the person that is there advocating triple, line, triple bottom line accounting, so people, planet, profit? Would that solve well, this? I, yes, that's what I do. I advise companies, and I, I, my role is to get boards of companies to be more comfortable with asking themselves these difficult questions. And so I, I think where I come in now is actually people have got so defensive and they're so scared of the issue. You know, you talk to an airline about sustainability, it's terrifying for them, for obvious reasons. And so my role is to say, look, don't panic. This is what you can do. It's not as bad as you think it is, but the most important thing is you've got to take control of this issue and stop being so defensive and just actually face up to the real issues, the real opportunities, the real threats, and do it. And that's what I do. I help them get their head around those issues. Thanks ever so much. I thoroughly enjoyed your talk this morning. Thanks Thank a lot. You. My pleasure. Wasn't that cool?
Very cool. It's nice to hear a balanced view, isn't it? You have people raving on about the extremities of these arguments. To have somebody have a balanced view up the middle, I think, is the way forward. And also, somebody who's actually done something about it. Sorted out FSC timber. So, it's time for a Monty cast. A Monty compost cast. A weekly fact on composting. Sunshine is best. Composters work quicker in the sunny locations, but if you have to, partial sun will work too. It will just take longer. Thanks, Mont. Now, before we go to your farm news, Phil, if you are listening to this, dear listener, in May 2011, then come along to the Hay Festival. We have got big action on our garden this coming week. We have celebs digging in wildflowers... Woo! We have, well, Terry Walton is one, but he's coming along. Woo! We have lots and lots of talks. We have our florists there and we have flowers all over the showground. Now, look, is this just all a thinly veiled excuse for you to attempt to get close to Rob Lowe? Yes. (laughs) And Rob Lowe Lowe is there and I um, hope to have secured one ticket to go and see him. And, uh, oh, he's lovely, isn't he? Oh, gosh, he is just gorgeous. And on the note of heartthrobs, we're most pleased to announce that we are through to the shortlisted companies for the Observer Ethical Awards and San and I are going along in mid-June to see how that works out. I hope that Colin Firth is ready for you. Thank you very much. For those of you who are not sure what's going on at Hay Festival, there's all sorts. For those of you that have listened to previous podcasts, two of our interviewees are there, Tim Smith and Roy Strong. And as on top of that, there's Monty Don, Carol Klein, there's Anne Wareham, the bad-tempered gardener, there's Chris Evans. You know, there's just all sorts, but the ones that we're going to see are... Well, we want to go and see Kevin McLeod, because he's great. For those of you who don't know, he does a programme in this country called Grand Designs, and he's very interested in architecture and landscape and so on, so he, he gets involved in building the most amazing things. And we're also going to see Evan Davis, who is the guy that presents Dragon's Den and now Business Nightmares. I was going to say, he's the BBC's business editor, isn't he? But just listen to this. Indian Knight, Nigella Lawson, Anne Robinson. They're all there. Ben Fogel, Julia Donaldson. Going to be good. Let's hope that the weather behaves itself. Absolutely. Come along. In the meantime, here we are. Farmer Phil's out in his cow shed. Well, this morning is one of those mornings of mixed emotions and mixed fortunes. We've had tragedy, we've had a little bit of sadness, and we've had one of those little rarities that comes along not very often. So the first disappointment was that we find one of our group of in-calf heifers who are calving now, so she was probably due to calve within the next month, had managed to get herself on her side so she couldn't get up overnight, and had blown up and died as a result of it, which seems one of those pointless wastes of perfectly reasonable animal and all the rest of it, and what a tragedy. The reason that this happens every so often is that ruminants produce a lot of gas in the digestion of their food, and they need to belch this gas up. And here's a little miracle this morning, but anyway, we'll talk about her in a minute. They need to belch the gas up 
and if they get on their side they can't belch and the gas builds up and the pressure of the gas effectively stops their heart ultimately and it takes perhaps an hour to do so that within reason you can look at them as often as you like if it goes wrong you can't do very much about it and it's just one of those sods law but it, what was quite disappointing was that she's in a deep litter yard with lots of straw there's not very much muck in the yard it's all quite flat and level and they're running in and out of a loafing yard outside and you would have thought that that was bomb proof perfect conditions for a group of heifers to be calving not far from the house and then that happens so having got the slaughterman to come and take her away we also had a couple of very old cows who have reached the end of their useful lives. They've had every chance, but for a variety of reasons, cannot produce any more calves. And so it was time for them to be put down and taken away as well. One of them was 20 years old. She was born on the farm and she's been an excellent cow and it's sad to see her go. And the other one was came onto the farm as a, as a heifer some 14 or 15 years ago and she likewise has been very good she had a problem with as cows get older they can start to suffer from prolapsing their womb particularly as they get into sort of later pregnancy and that's what's happened to her and the result of that is that the womb becomes damaged and she won't won't then get in calf and so from that point of view they have to go. The reason that the slaughterman has to put them down on the farm is because they were born before July 1996. They're not allowed into the human food chain and so they have to go and be tested for BSE which is bovine spongiform encephalophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophilophiloph
that was a little bit of good news to go with not such a good start to the day. So with that I shall carry on administering breakfast for twins. I should say that in my experience in cattle, twins come along about 1% of the time. We seem to usually have one set of twins a season, there or thereabouts, um, so one in a hundred. Sometimes twins can be highly successful and sometimes they can be disastrous. One of the problems is they get all mixed up with each other in the womb so calving doesn't work very well that way or alternatively because they're usually smaller it can work very well indeed in as much that you're not trying to deal with a very large calf. The other thing with twins which is quite interesting which will probably apply to these that you get a higher incidence of what are called free martins which are animals with either indeterminate sex or they will look like a heifer but they won't breed they won't necessarily have their ovaries or whatever and it only seems to show up in twins and usually I think I'm right in saying that if you have a bull and a heifer, the heifer is potentially likely to be a free martin. If you have two heifers, as we've got in this case, they probably won't be. But it is something to check before you keep a twin for breeding purposes, is to make sure that it's all got all the bits that it needs inside. So that'll be something for later on if they grow on enough and look good enough to keep. Thanks very much. If you'd like to tune in to the next weekly podcast, you need to be with us next Monday. Thanks so much for listening in. If you could possibly pop along to iTunes and do a review, that would be just a jolly ticket. Bye from me. And bye from me. If you want any stuff, go to www.wigglywigglers.co.uk. Thanks, bye. I do, I help them get their head around those issues. Thanks ever so much. I thoroughly enjoyed your talk this morning. Thanks Thank a lot. My pleasure. What's the name of that software again? I just, um, just a sec. She said working out what the hell to do.